Hi everybody, welcome to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, episode 17 here. Um, we're talking RepEx Brisbane Reptile Expo with Joe Ball and Scott Owen, and talking some blue tongue lizard stuff. Um, in honor of our very special guests, of course, we have to have our cake and cocktails. So we're drinking lounge lizards. Um, <laughs> it's a dark rum with uh, about half a shot of amaretto as well, some lime juice, um, topped off with Coke, and it's got an orange wedge in there because we're fancy. And we're having a uh, blue velvet cake, not red velvet. We've got blue velvet because we're, you know, we're talking blue, blue tongue lizards. Blue tongue lizards. So we got our lounge lizards and our mm. blue velvet cake. Oh yeah, mm. man, the icing on that is pretty much just like a really sugary cheesecake, mm. and you can still pour. It just hasn't set into consistency. Fantastic. All right, <laughs> joining us today we have um, the very talented Mr. Joe Ball from BlueTongueLizard.com.au. You can also find him on Facebook at Blue Tongue Lizard. Same, yeah, bluetonguelizard.com.au on Facebook, Instagram, and um, even YouTube. Even YouTube as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. you're doing a lot of videos on there, quite instructional and... Yeah, a bit of all sorts. A little bit yeah. educational. Trying to go for quality, not quantity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good, very good. Um, he's got a master's in animal science, uh, and he's also one of the Rep Brisbane Reptile Expo ambassadors, which we'll be talking about a little bit more later. Uh, Joe's an incredibly knowledgeable and innovative blue tongue lizard breeder here in Brisbane and a world leader in producing some phenomenal coloured morphs of blue tongue. Uh, now these are not just your regular albinos um, and things that you know occasionally pop up fairly regularly when people start breeding things repeatedly, but there's some pretty, um, I mean, some really cool uh, jet black hypermelanistics and now producing even some like multiple gene crossovers like the larvas and the Yeah, so it's morphs. all about getting two color combinate two color morphs and combining them to see what the next outcome can be so right. yeah it's it's all in the combination yeah that, that's and the a, buzzword at the moment and so. a lot of like variation there for breeders yeah play. of course you get a lot of natural variation in there too yeah. so it basically opens up a can of worms when you get all these ingredients and put them together you um you surprise yourself. Yeah, right. You definitely surprise the community, and you, you most definitely surprise yourself with what what can be achieved. So. Well, there's some phenomenal, like really beautiful looking morphs that are coming out, and things that you just wouldn't expect to be, you know, hidden, locked away there in the blue tongue genome. A little bit. Of yeah, and when, when you think think what the blue tongue was when I first got into reptiles, which was really a, if you like, a, an E-grade celebrity in the blue tongue world this sort of, if you like, this animal that you keep in a cage that poops and stinks everywhere. And Basically a training a, wheels for reptiles. Yeah, a, a very, very poor cousin to a snake. Yeah. And now, all of a sudden, the snake world is looking, especially in Australia anyway, yeah. is looking up at the blue tongues and they're basically showing snakes a clean pair of heels when it comes to the, the morph combinations and potential. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah. Fantastic stuff. And look, you also keep some, uh, you're keeping emerald tree monitors and some other cool things. I saw some photos with parentes and other monitor lizards. Yeah, I also get into the monitors. Yeah, I like to keep all the big monitors, if you like. That's that's my Harley in the driveway, nice. is my, is my parenti. So yeah, fantastic. It's, it's not needed, it's not necessary, but hey, I've got them. I spent yeah. um, several weeks uh, uh, volunteering out uh, doing some ecological stuff for um, uh, AWC. And in my time off, I was looking for a parenti. I spent two weeks out there looking for one. Couldn't find Couldn't one. Find Three one. days after we leave, they find a juvenile in, um, in one of their pit bulls. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful animals. Um, now, look, also on the couch, we're uh, lucky uh, enough to be talking to Mr. Scott Owen from Rep X Brisbane Reptile Expo. Um, he's here to tell us a bit more about the upcoming event 
um, some of the incredible displays they have uh, going down and some of the ins and outs of running a wildlife expo of this magnitude. Um, all happening on March 25th, um, 2018. So look, if you are interested uh, out there in reptiles, uh, native reptiles in particular, save the date. Uh, that'll be the inaugural Rep Expo, Brisbane Reptile Expo on the 25th of March um, at the Royal International Convention Center uh, in the Brisbane Showgrounds, uh, boasting an amazing array of invertebrates, birds of prey, and uh, much, much more for you all to come and experience. Uh, and you can check them out at repx.com.au. Guys, thank you so much for joining us at Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. Cool, Pleasure. thanks. Excellent, excellent. Scott, um, before we talk to Joe all about his uh, blue tongue breeding and, and that kind of stuff, just um, I guess he's just a couple of short months away from um, what is a first of its kind, 1,700 meters squared, um, the biggest reptile expo in the state. Um, why do something so difficult? <laughs> why take on such a big challenge? Was that, What was the inspiration for the project, basically? Um, I own, I'm part owner of Veritas Reptile. All right. right, okay. So I've done that for a long time. And I've been to shows probably since 2010. And I never really went to these shows with the idea that I want to do my own. I really just went for my own business. But it wasn't until I went to the Perth show to extend some business over there that I met John McGrath, who came to me and he says, oh, what do you think of the show? I was like, oh, it's pretty good, but might, they need to fix this and that and whatever. He said, oh, have you ever thought of doing your own? And I thought yes but i didn't know what to do so he said he knew all these contacts right and i have a very strong sort of production background so we have john to thank yeah he instigated it basically <laughs> but um i've always wanted to as years have gone on i've always felt like i wanted to do something about it and people would uh say that oh we should do this we should do that but then it doesn't happen and they may not have the knowledge of how to do that and that's fair but really the only way that you know it's going to work as if you actually do it so i'm just Here we going are. down that path to yeah, do that right. basically making it all happen step yeah. by step um so what exactly is your role at uh, repex so my background i've been like past say 10 years i've done essentially what's called industrial design for signage so it's a, a role where i have to design complicated signage for um multinational brands right in the pacific region so it's a lot of work with complicated things and planning but two years ago, I also had a stroke where it made my mind even, essentially it was a rare stroke where it made my mind smarter, right? Wow. So it made me <laughs> better at planning. So your, your logistic skills got even better. Yeah, and, yeah uh... basically better than they were. So <laughs> they said that whatever my mind was like before, it just essentially got like triply enhanced, you know, <laughs> super enhanced basically. So the psychologist I was talking to at the time, she said, you know, we've got to think of ways that kind of engage with how your mind is now. So it turns out that uh, I'm a bit more of a boss brain and a bit more, a lot more like uh, solution driven right. planning, that kind of thing. Management and, and organization. And that's essentially someone who organizes a show. Right. So I've pretty much been essentially born into this role. <laughs> right. But I've got all the experience to know how to produce it. Kind of thing. The, were, were the you, capacity to yeah. coordinate. Yeah, yeah like, that kind of thing. Because I certainly find when I try and coordinate anything, once it gets more than four or five folds, it just gets too much. That's what know? we have yeah. producers for. Yeah. Uh, if, you've, if, if any of our audience have ever heard any of our shows, or if you guys have ever heard any of our shows where I don't have an audio producer helping mm. me because they're away for some reason, it's a shambles. <laughs> we, we need to have uh, summer sound solutions over there. So, like, yeah. officially, my role as such is called the visual production manager. Yeah. But, like, John, he'll basically do the finance side and um, key um, kind of like contact side of things. Right. But any 
thing that has to do with how it's delivered and why that's there and how we get that to work. That's all on me. Wow. That's, and then one of the reasons why I'm here is kind of to do with the production side of that. Um, did you, uh, just a random thought, did you have this uh, the stroke before or after you were thinking about running the expo? Oh, before. Before. Like two years ago, uh, never, 2015, I think. Wow. So the expo came around that quickly? Uh, a couple of years and... Oh, no, no, no. Um, I've been going to the expo since 2010. Right. Uh, just generally for my other business. Right. But it, uh, I went to Perth, I think, July last year. Yeah, okay. Um, just to expand my Veritas Reptile brand. There was no idea so of last, doing a show. last year so is when things really kicked off. Well, basically, John came to me in July, and I think we got the whole business side of things, the number and ABN and all that kind of thing, sorted out in April, September. So it's been essentially going since then. I wow. think the website came up in October. So I, um, we've been really running for the past five months, and while it is our first show, I'm pretty sure we're doing a really good job of just even getting to there. Well, look, everything that we've seen coming up about it, it looks fantastic. Like I said, there's so many amazing displays from the, the you know display areas to the monitor pits and the, the birds of prey I'm very, very excited about mm. seeing. Um, you know, Even getting close to a wedgetail eagle. For somebody who's never gotten to see them uh, up that close, I definitely recommend people get down there. It's, um, it's looking like it's going to be a good show. Yeah, well, you only ever get to see, like, wedgetails normally, like, 200 meters in the sky. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, they're tiny, but yeah. you get to see, like, right up there and close. And if you're lucky enough, you might have find one next to the road hitting some carrion. Yeah. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. But um, if, uh, if the venue allows for it, because it might depend on whether there's someone in that space or not, if the plaza is open for that day, uh, we'll be getting possibly like say three to four uh, flight shows done on the day as well. Wow, flight shows inside the plaza? Uh, well, not in, the plaza is the outside sort of foyer area. Okay. It's outside, it's not inside a building. Yeah, right. But um, he'll take his animals from the display inside the venue out wow. and do a little show and show them flying around that. Wow, very so exciting. Hopefully that's something that will happen. Yeah, Otherwise cool. he'll just be in there showing all the animals all day. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Well, dude, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, um, yeah, cheers. Very, very happy to have you guys here. Yep. Um, now, um, I suppose we should uh, talk about blue tongues, but uh, before we get too deep into it, I know you're known in the industry for your blue tongues and your breeding and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, but you, um, when, when did you actually move to Australia? It would have been 2001. I came as a backpacker. Right. Um, yeah, just, just out of interest, really. As yeah, a, okay. As a sort of kid trying to hang on to his last few kiddie years and yeah, right. came to check out Australia and um, ended up staying. Yeah, right. So it's not like um, you uh, were in the UK and super interested in reptiles and decided to come over for that reason. Right? Oh, that was part of Australia's always motivated me as a place where I wanted to check out. But you didn't so, come here with the goal of being a blue tongue breeder? No, not at right. all. Yeah. No, that's something that's circumstance driven by yeah. my interest in reptiles, which ultimately came about via persistence and <laughs> as it always does wanting to get more and more animals and creating more and more opportunity for myself to do so it it basically just became something from right from a passion you know like yeah yeah, yeah. so you, then, you're already and then, and then, to, to see the end goal before it started i think is now an impossible it, it's just something that's grown yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's hard to plan that far into the future well, i'm from a background of you know i, I have an agricultural science degree my family of farmers i've always been around animals so I, I suppose once i started on the journey of collecting these things that it was always 
you know, it, it was in the DNA. Breeding and husbandry was it's, not yeah, far that, around it's, pro, it's programmed in there. Yeah. So uh, as, as the opportunity arose, it sort of filled, filled a void in my life that right. I, I, I sort of um, inher- inherited to. So. Yeah, very cool. So well, you, you came over here as a backpacker, got even more interested in our reptiles, I guess, while you were over here? Or? Um, the first year, really, while I was here, it was more just about recreation. I was just having a look around. But Excellent. One, once I actually managed to acquire a visa and stay, that, that, you know, that's when I sort of had the capacity to follow my old interests. I did keep reptiles in the UK. Yeah. I've always had something in a tub. What were you, you like. keeping in the UK? I don't, I, uh, iguanas ball pythons turtles all the cool things that we can't get here yeah well that's your perception <laughs> that, that, that they're cool i think it's merely because you can't keep them yeah, <laughs> yeah. the, the reality the reality all, is all reptile keepers wanting what we can't have yeah, yeah. well in the reptile game overseas the iguana can be considered as a bit of a, a rodent if you like they're yeah they're right a dime a dozen but to the australian a, a, a certainly a fully mature iguana seems mm. to be the holy grail but yeah beautiful lizards they certainly are yeah. fantastic and um so um what is it uh, about blue tongues specifically that you do that drew you to them um i guess like i said they're, they're kind of uh there's that relative ease of keeping um at least comparatively um, and then there's all those you know improvements that you've yourself made over the few you know, years to your housing methods and, and stuff like i suppose that. amongst reptile keepers you, you you may agree we are split we're either snakeos or, or we're, we're, we're lizard keepers uh, yeah yeah i, I know we all, we all like them all yeah um but i do i do think that that's the, the the starting block for me i was always naturally interested in four-legged reptiles yeah um i kept other other lizards in the UK like you said, you know, dragons and iguanas. I'd never really kept any skinks. When I got to Australia, I, I I'd seen blue tongues and I'd, I'd read a little bit about the, the um, abundance of skink species here and got, and sort of got interested in skinks if you like, and and it sort of grew from there. Right. So, and then noticing online the guys at Snake Ranch having albino and hypermelanistic blue tongues it immediately was i gotta have those right and then it, it became if you like gotta catch them all you know yeah, you, got, right. you, got, you gotta have them all so every, every time there was another phenotype or genotype that that popped up it had to you know it, it became part of the chase too and then again it, it sort of grows from there right so you're just adding to your collection anytime constantly you're and, that, and then the interest more. goes first you've got to replicate that particular genotype or phenotype then once you've achieved that you're like well how's this how's this particular genotype going to correlate with the other and yeah. what's that going to produce and which one's going to be dominant? Yeah, and then, you, then your genetics comes into yeah. play. and all Which this. We, we will be talking yeah, into a little yeah. bit more about later, and, uh, about the, the genetics of some of these color morphs. But um, yeah, very interesting. Um, and I understand as well, you're, uh, you've got the emerald tree monitors as well, which I have to ask, difficult to keep, but they must be one of the coolest monitors out there, right? I'd say they're the holy grail for Australian reptile keepers. Yeah. They've been on license in Queensland for some time um, because of their apparent sightings on Moa Island. They were, a, a keeper uh, managed to get some animals via uh, some kind of reptile rescue in Queensland 
and has had them for five, six years. Right. And I naturally found myself trying to be friendly with that particular <laughs> individual. As you do. So, so that I could get some myself. And me, me and a friend have picked up a pair each. And um, yeah, let, let's hope that that's the start of what for me is absolutely the holy grail of reptiles. And, let, and, and let's hope we can get them on license in other states. Yeah. Uh, or at least distributed to keep us around Queensland at a price that's affordable. So you both have breeding pairs uh, at the moment. Yeah, there's me and a friend that have a pair each. So, and 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 that's very much a a, a share project. I.e., you know, we'll cross hatch them backwards and forwards till we get some success. Right. Yeah. And the ultimate goal is, as I said, is to get them in the hands of every keeper in Queensland or every keeper that wants them. Yeah. At a price that isn't exorbitant yeah so. fantastic and um obviously emerald tree monitor the name kind of uh says it all but uh just for our audience who don't know what they like do you want to describe them for us well you've seen them closer than, than i have so. yeah well they are a monitor lizard so they're the same family if you like as your parentes your spencer's monitors your, even komodo dragon yeah that's right so if you like they're a dinosaur because your, your, your last recorded dinosaur was Varanus megalania, which was in Australia. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, we, we've all watched the movies with, um, um, what are they called now? Well, uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, we've all watched Jurassic Park. And, and that's basically what you're looking at in those movies. Yeah, you're, right. You're, you know, you're looking at Velociraptor, which has the same sort of head profile as a... As, as a, a monitor. As, yeah. as a Panoptes or a, yeah. or a Parenti. So that, that's basically what they are. They're, yeah. they're the last surviving dinosaurs. Um, and, and within that, they are the most beautiful. They have a striking emerald green coloration, which, um, which basically knocks your socks off. Yeah. And um, they're, they're handleable, so they're, they're, they're palm-sized, so anybody can keep them. Contrary to what people think, they're not actually that hard to keep. Okay, they're not an entry-level reptile, but uh, they, they tick every box. Right. They, they, they live in the trees, as per, as per their description. They have a prehensile tail, which means their, their tail is a fifth limb. They literally do swing on that and use it as a, a fifth foot, if you like. They, they eat crickets and uh, small invertebrates like that and little bits of sort of chopped up bird, turkey mince, that kind of stuff. A little bit of lean meat in yeah, there now and again. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah. Yeah, wow. And um, they're quite slender as well, sort of dainty little things. Dainty little things, yeah. yeah they're, they're fascinating. Yeah. They, they, they really are. How long have you had them now? Oh, uh, 18 months. 18 months. Yeah, yeah. So very, very jealous, man, obviously. Reach, I'm not, reach, not reach, the only person, but... Uh, reaching adult size, so hopefully we'll get some um, reproductive action in the next, in the upcoming season. So, um, so I guess keep a, keep an eye out on uh, Facebook <coughs> at... Yeah, to Bluetongue, see progress on that. Bluetonguelizard.com.au yeah. well, um, Facebook. I think uh, we've sort of talked about, I think he's going to have a couple at the Repex show too. Ooh. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm hoping to take, I'll probably take one there. Yeah, I'll wonderful. The, the, the males are very um, confident, sort Excellent. of outgoing lizards, so I'm, I'm hoping to take him. I might I might leave the leave his wife at home. Yeah, a little bit shy. But yes, yeah. but I, I, I might bring the big fella. Ooh, yeah. ooh very exciting. All right, well, they, hope, they, hope we get to yeah, see him they, there. They have been showed before, so, um, but... Yeah, this is the next step in this. We need to keep them out there yep. so that people can see them. So, well, yeah, 
Wow. So very, very busy, obviously, with all these uh, these animals and all these plans coming up. Um, and uh, on top of that, um, as we mentioned, you're a, you're a RepEx ambassador. Um, Scott's managed to wrangle you in as one of uh, in one of their ambassador roles. Um, how did uh, how did he manage that? First of all, get you away from all your reptiles, and um, uh, what does what does what does the ambassador role kind of involve? It's I guess that's for both of you. So. I suppose I suppose I'd like to cover what it actually means to me. And and your first question was, um, how did Scott manage to wrangle wrangle me into doing that? It really didn't take that much wrangling because my, you know, my I understand what an ambassador is. And, and, and I Happy do to advocate for reptiles. Yeah, a, a, exactly right. You know, and I've, I've been in the in the reptile game for some time now. I've sort of climbed the imaginary ladder, if you like, and and I do see what I do as presenting a responsibility, if you like. If I want to see this grow in Australia, yeah, right. Uh, as as time to put put a little bit back in. Not you know, as I said to Scott, I said. So some of these commitments you're not necessarily chomping at the bit to take them on because you've always got other commitments in life as you just discussed but certainly to me it's something I feel that you know I want to grab with both hands because you know where's where's the next guy going to come from if if I can't use what what I've done um to to sort of water the grass and allow other keepers to 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 follow that path if you like you know I certainly see when I got into reptiles I used to look up to certain individuals and, I, and I, I reckon I sort of mirror some of those guys now. And I, and, I, and I see young kids that sort of approach me quite regularly wanting to get inside my brain, if you like, to get bits of information about this, that, and the other. And uh, while sometimes it, 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 it can interfere with what you're doing, you do sort of realize it's an obligation. So it's one that I, yeah, I, I embrace yeah. wholeheartedly. Fantastic. Yeah. And Scott, um, what exactly is uh, is Joe's role going to be um, as an ambassador for you guys? Um, it's not to say that they're necessarily like an employee and they must do this <laughs> and that and that. Yeah. It's really just advocating what RepEx is about. Right. So it's not to say that they've got to do X role and that and that. It's up to how they interpret that to be done. Right. Yeah. And so it's just about promoting. encouraging how, you know, RepEx is just a conduit by which people can see things right yeah. they've got to advocate how important it is to see that right. basically yeah and for me that's to, that translates to me it's an opportunity for me to take some of my best animals put them on display um it's not uh, it's not which we'll probably discuss it's not an opportunity to sell those animals that's not how i see this it's a, it's an opportunity to put them out there and say look at how cool these are and then i'm going to give you a piece of my passion when you ask me about them yeah. So that people can you know, buy into that yeah. and go, geez, I get wanna, enthusiastic I do, about it. I want to well. do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's my goal is to so that that young kid or, or whoever yeah. looks at me and sees what I'm doing and walks away going, oh. I want to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, the fan, that's that's a fantastic you know thing. The more people that we have interested in our native wildlife, I mean, always is like, always good. Um, Joe's the ambassador up in Brisbane. And so it's local to Brisbane, but we also have like Neville Burns, Michael Sumac, and um, Gavin uh, Bedford. Right. Um, so they're coming up as well. So we've got Neville down in New South Wales. Neville Burns, a famous yep. snake catcher and snake handler and demonstrator. Yeah. Yep. We've got Michael Sumac, the zoologist, photographer, um, green tree python guy. He's basically supplied all the um, 
reptile photography for yeah. brand. Fantastic so photographer like and zoology guy up there yeah. in um up there in near Townsville. Uh, you got Gavin uh, up no, no, in Neville Burns. Neville you Burns. Gavin, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got Gavin up in Northern Territory, do we? No, no, no. Um, so Michael Sumax in um, Cairns. 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 Yeah. And um, I'm not sure because um, most of the ambassadors are all sort are sort sorted by um, John. Right. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure Gavin's down down south. Right. I, oh no, I, I'm just thinking because he's working Bad- with Gavin Badgerton. He's working. Oh, you're thinking. Oh, Gavin yeah, Badgerton. Yeah, because yeah, 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 yeah. he's yeah. working with Dinopelli Pythons. Yeah. yeah. That's why I'm thinking. But yeah, Neville Burns yeah, right. is Neville Burns right. is down south yeah, in yeah, New yeah. South Wales. Yeah. Anyway, Fantastic. They're all coming up. Yeah. So yeah, basically, yeah. everyone will be there. And um, Michael Simak and Gavin Bedford and Neville Burns will have their own tables and stuff. All legends yeah. are in their own right in the um. Yeah, but they all have the same role as Joe does. So yeah. it's all about advocating what reptiles are about. They're just associated with Repex, but Repex is just how that is delivered to the public. Yeah, right. Basically, very cool. Very cool. Um, well, look, we'll, we'll get back to Repex in, uh, in a little bit, but uh, let's talk lizards um, while we got you here, of course. Um, now, before we get you know deep into the blue tongues, do you do you keep reptiles yourself? No, no. <laughs> I mean, just interested, just an interested I, reptile fan. I probably could, but I'm more. I could be in dogs, cats, whatever. If there's a problem, I'll fix it. <laughs> basically, yeah, right. the role of how I work. Yeah, right. Okay. I um, appreciate reptiles. I used to hate, uh, not so much hate, but I used to have that childish kind of um, fear and fear aversion. of a aver- aversion and stuff of snakes and stuff. Yeah, but since. Um, being exposed to them through my business partner who at the time owned like 20 snakes or something yeah I got over that yeah so a bit more of an uh, I guess an enthusiast and appreciator of yeah but that's essentially what I'd like to um, encourage with people who come to the show because it's not just about reptile oh yeah you don't have to be a reptile freak to come and enjoy yourself yeah Yeah. because I guess a kind of mini goal of mine is to um, uh, not that I'd abolish it but minimize the um, amount of times that people use that phrase a good snake is a dead snake yeah because yeah. it's not really it's a lot of people are saying it just because they think there's something well, bad do you know yeah, what I mean it's, yeah. not, it's an uneducated yeah yeah, yeah. so basically it's an education tool as well yeah so yeah, yeah. It's a lot to we it. fear what we don't understand yeah. absolutely and that and that yeah, it, it basically lies in those so I'm, words yeah. I'm basically representing that very person I'm talking about yeah I okay. used to be that and now I'm not because yeah. I was educated Fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the more we can do that, the better. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, all right, let's talk blue tongues. Um, now, personally, I started keeping uh, reptiles with blue tongues. Um, I started uh, when I lived down in Melbourne with uh, Nigra Latia. So, look yeah. at Nigra Latia. Okay. Some blotchies. Yeah, yeah. The little blotchies down there. I got them when I was, uh, you know, five, six years old, I think. Um, so, this was in Melbourne. And we're using, you know, indoor enclosures with lighting and heating and thermostats and yeah. uh, doing everything very enclosed. We had this very broad diet of like uh, lean meat, uh, always getting snails and making sure that yeah. they're, they're you know in a tub for a little while so they haven't been pelleted or poisoned. Yeah. Um, you know, tin foods, fruit and veg. Um, and then we moved to Queensland. Everything's far too hot. You yeah. know, we don't need all of that heating anymore. Yeah, things get humid and funky rather quickly. Quickly, yeah. Um, so I guess being based here in Brisbane, um, you do things a little bit differently than what we would have been doing down in Melbourne. Yeah, I, I have my own methods, but, yeah. but that certainly doesn't mean um, I, I look negatively on other methods. You know, there, there is a lot of different ways to keep animals, and there are a lot of variables that you need to consider. Sure. 
within your circumstances to how you need to go about doing things. Yeah. For instance, yourself keeping maybe one or two blotches down south, you know, if you want to put it in a vivarium and you want to offer 20 different types of food and this, that and the other, knock yourself out. Yeah, you know, absolutely that, nothing you know, wrong with keeping them that way. That, that, that's right. But um, when it comes to keeping larger numbers of animals, and like you say, in different states and different levels of humidity, etc., etc., you know, you need to start looking at different husbandry techniques if you're going to achieve what you, what you know, some of your goals. Yeah. And um, for me, the biggest one of those is finding a diet which suits all. Right. Um, it, it's palatable. It's got everything in it, and it actually stops the animal sorting through and picking out the little bits that it does or it doesn't like. Right. And um, across a larger number of animals, I find that is key. Uh, and also, it, it, it has to be something that doesn't get fly-blown in five minutes, for want of yeah, a better right. expression. Uh, and in, in humid conditions, you, you know, you've got all that to, to think about too. So that's very interesting. That if you know, you, you even though you might be providing them um, a broad variety of foods, they might only be picking two items that they enjoy because in, they, in that, the wild they're getting them from that, a different. Yeah, that, that's right. That's a concept that a lot of people don't understand when they um, chop up for little Lizzie a bowl that's got twenty different colours of different things in there, and they think they've created a smorgasbord, but essentially what they've done is um, like offering a child 30 choices he's just gonna take out the chocolate bars and yeah leave, leave the, the salad yeah. leave the salad yeah <laughs> you know? yeah that's very interesting um, so um, that high humidity um, the fungal bacterial infection um, uh, I guess issues up here so you're going basically a dry food mix a lot of the time are you? yeah or I, I, I I took it to an extreme, to be honest, and then I, and then I've deviated back again because you know that these kind of things are always up for review and yeah. what does and doesn't work. Well, you always fluctuate around and optimal. Yeah, and, that, and that's get closer and closer. Yeah, and I, I found a middle ground now, but the the original concept was to take away from using these perishable food items and to find something that is suitable tasty and covers all bases and it's it's not really rocket science uh, and it doesn't take much of a genius to look around to see that there's precedence for this already out there in you know in the dog and cat world is probably yeah. your best example with all their dried foods that um cover a nutritional balance for those particular animals yes there's still advocates of that and people do and don't like it but essentially it's accepted that to feed a dog and cat these days you can use these dry foods that um, cover their nutritional needs and you don't have to be going to the butchers to ch get chopped up bones and offal and this yeah. and that and the other and however we used to keep the you know keep these animals years ago and I, I applied the same principle basically to blue tongues right and I sought after a dried food that was suitable for them and not only that, it could be left there 24-7 so that they could eat it ad libitum. And it's a solid hard dry pebble or do you, is it well, so, I, sort of a medium? Originally it was. There was actually a lizard food already formulated for this. You know, yeah, I'm there, there trying, is various standard I'm not palette. trying to say that I was the first to think of this yeah. far from it, but I, I, I suppose I put it to, I was the first to really put it to the test and I, 
I, I found a, uh, a lizard product and put it down for every lizard and just left it there. And you found that some took it, some didn't, some absolutely no interest at all. But then you found that if you kept it fresh, you know, um, you got more of an uptake over time because hunger drives more interest, etc. Yeah, right. And um, I started having some success with it, but it was never, never quite hit the goals that I wanted to. But then I, I saw another keeper trying some basically some cat biscuits, and I, I, I thought, well, why not give that a shot? You know, you know the guys at Purina have. Um, must have invested some thought process somewhere along the line. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, you've got all the nutritional things that you need on the packet right yeah, there. So yeah, as that, long as it's got the what vitamin D. That, you yeah, know, that's right. There's even D. Th there's even D three within those products. So there's everything go. in there. Yeah. Um, and so I, I I went along that line and went and I went, and I, I hit them all with this dried cat food and got basically a seventy five percent uptake oh. on that across all my animals, and. I found that they were, their live weight gain was increased um, because I was able to have it out all the time and fresh all the time yeah, because right. it is a product that doesn't, yes you have to change it, you can't leave it there, you, know, you have to change it but you can leave it there all the time with minimal fuss. It's not you don't like have raw to chicken. Up, you don't have to wash up bowls every second day, you yeah, know, it's right. all. And then you found that stool cons constituency, constituency uh, improved because you were getting the same uniform mouthful all the time. You know, you, you, you basically improve the environment of the lizard and you've and you, and you got a, um, yeah, a uniform response, which and, is what you're looking for. Because these animals, you know, contrary to what people think, these animals are not in the wild, they're in captivity. And if you're trying to mimic stuff in the wild, that is often a big failing with reptiles. There is certain things you're looking to, to imitate when keeping reptiles in captivity, but, um, to think that you can replicate everything in the wild is, is, is a dangerous path. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's always kind of the toss-up. Uh, do you want to try to replicate natural conditions or do you want to make it as comfortable, happy and healthy as possible, whatever that means? Well, I think yeah. you have to pick what the reptile is looking for in those natural conditions. Yeah. And usually there's a... There's a, a, a Not parasites and predators. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're looking to hide from those. There's a triangle of needs, really, with a yeah. reptile. You've got... They're looking for safety, which is a hide. They're looking for um, Flies the, right te the right temperature <laughs> and a decent food source. Yeah, right. And if you supply those three, you're going to get healthy animals. Yeah. You know, like you say, I don't need to supply parasites and a, a, and a predator. Like, to to keep them healthy? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, fantastic. Um, and uh, again, with that lower water intake, their excreter is less... You know, there's less fluid. Yeah, it's fluid uniform yeah. because you, you you know you're getting that balanced diet. You know yeah. yourself. You only have to apply it to yourself if you eat your greens and you eat everything that's put in front of you. Yeah. Or you eat a supposed balanced diet as opposed to hanging out down at the the, the takeaway all yeah. the time. And you know. You, I guess what we should explain as well about blue tons is that they kind of slide around on their belly. They've got these short little legs and then a tail behind it. So anything that any time that they do excrete something. They're kind of dragging their tail through it a little through bit. Through a little bit, yeah. So if you're feeding them kind of a wet snail and vegetable-based diet and you've got a really watery poop every yeah, time, it's right. going to be a, uh, increasing that humidity content as well. That's it. But having said that, on top of that, you know, I, I have changed it and I do now um, create a, 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 a midpoint. I, I've created a wet, a wet product that I can go in weekly over the top of the dried food 
to give them that sort of point of interest to keep them going. Right. So you know that's that's that, that's. So they don't get bored with it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> that's it. I, I, it's basically a, a patty, if you like. I either use turkey mince or beef mince, mix in egg yolk, mix in a bit of calcium powder, and and a few sort of of the of the things that they, they love. Yeah, right. Mix in a little bit of powdered format of that dried food, so that you, it, it's not completely. Um, it, it's a wet product, but it's not something that, that's sloppy. You know, yeah, you know? right. Um, yeah, so you, you, you do need to tick both boxes, but yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And um, as for the outdoor enclosures as well, like it's uh, they're fascinating to me because, uh, you know, uh, most, uh, most outdoor enclosures that you see are either big cage systems or um, pits, basically. Mm. Um, yours look kind of more like a uh, and sort of a elevated guinea pig hutch. Well, that's basically what where they came from. But I suppose to rewind that a little bit, when I first started keeping lizards in Australia, I was um, fascinated by this term pit. And I'll be honest, in a negative kind of way, it, was like, <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't know, sound. Uh, it doesn't sound very appealing. And 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 my experience. The lizard pit. My experience yeah. of setting one of these things up was was a hundred percent negative, because you, you you put in half a dozen solitary animals into this large area and watch them all punch on. Yeah, yeah. and then you created um, stress across the whole group, which then led to a whole assortment of issues within that group, and only probably the couple at the top of the food chain, if you like, were the ones that did well. So. Yeah, right. um, I, I created I created one of these pits and found that then I, I needed to split it up, and then, so f on top of that, I, I just saw in a pet shop a single rabbit hutch. If you look like well, it wouldn't be a rabbit hutch in Queensland. It's a guinea pig hutch. Mm. I perceived it to be a rabbit hutch, but that's essentially not here what in Queensland. Yeah, but that's essentially <laughs> what they're called, regardless of what you keep it yeah. in. They're they're rabbit hutches, and um, I thought, hey, that. That, that could work quite well, you know. Um, you've got the compartment at the back, it's raised off the floor, so, um, you know, it's not going to get too wet. You've got um, the chance for sunlight to come in from the sides, the top, which covers you for all, all different times of the year. And I got a few of these and modified them. Was there a lot of modifications you need to make? or Not really, you know. You, you, you can find ones that are pretty almost already there nice set to go yeah yeah it depend, depends on the on the model i suppose but not difficult to make from scratch too yeah. if you if you have half, half you've got the woodworking skills yeah which I do you, not. but <laughs> even e even then you know make a wonky table that's right yeah <laughs> and and that enables me to uh, you know w within with within my animal keeping i have every different scenario which enables me to get out of jail if you like on the topic of UV uh, and all these different perceptions that people have for animals' needs. I can have animals outdoors for a period of time, I can have them indoors. Some do better indoors, some do better outdoors. You know, and being able to offer all these options gives, gives me the results I need. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Well, um, that's, um, I guess, uh, a lot easier than I had thought. I thought you'd have to do a fair bit to these these hutches to kind of get them ready for a blue tongue, but they're, I mean, uh, the requirements aren't really that different, I suppose. No, there's there's a compartment at the back that allows 
entry for the animal in and entry for the animal out, then the front bit is essentially a bask area. And uh, rain and humidity just... Well, I suppose that, that there's, there's that piece which, you know, here in Australia you've got weathered, it's always some kind of deluge, it's either heat deluge or rain deluge. Um, yeah, there's plenty in between, but you have to prepare yourself for the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Because one day of the year, there's enough heat to kill any animal in a, in a wooden box, let alone yeah. you know, a reptile that likes a bit of heat. So what I do with that is I, I have um, a decent grade of tarpaulin, which I hover above um, above the cages. So they basically use as a shade sail. Right, and just and a bit of draft coming through. A bit of draft, so on a hot day, the draft is coming through and yeah. it keeps it at, at, um, at um, shade temperatures. Nice and simple. That's right, and, and, and on a rainy day, it just falls on it and just runs off, you know? And then on your, on your ambient days, you can take the tops away and let them have what, what nature's offering. Fantastic. Yes, of course. There's a bit of labour involved, but um, there is no set and forget with reptiles. That's another perception people think. They think they can set something up and leave them alone. Yeah, it's I, not, I, I, it's I don't okay. think that's possible. I think you, you've always got to be looking at, at, at making tweaks to any any setup that you've got at different times of the year to to read your reptiles' behaviour and make sure they're, they're doing the right things. Well, they need the right, um, you know diurnal thermal cycles and, and right. things like that especially if you want to get them to breed you need to cool things and so you do need to provide that seasonality i suppose yeah um well is there any um common misconceptions i suppose with blue tongues uh I, we've covered the humidity thing um but uh health wise and i guess husbandry wise what's uh what's the most common thing people get wrong that you see uh I, th I think the trap that most people fall into is they, they, they and, and it happens all the time on social media, it, it becomes a, a, a ship fight if you like, or this is wrong and this is right. Yeah. Oh, you can't, you don't need UV, yes you do, you can't feed them that, you can't do this. It, it, I think, that, that, as we touched on earlier, there, there's, there's so many different ways to do things and a little bit of everything, if done correctly, is going to enrich the animal's life. And I think that for me is the biggest, is the biggest misconception is that people enter into a lot of these things with a closed mind and, and they don't have an open thought process around all the different yeah. ways and means to, just because I do this doesn't mean you have to. So the yeah. biggest misconception is that there is, you know, only one way to boil an egg. Yeah, of. that's right. And that, you know, and my way's right. Yeah. You know, and that, yeah. That I feel is the biggest hang up in reptile keeping in general, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially the efficiency of what you can do. Yeah. So there's no point if Joe can do this because he can, and that suits his environment and that's how he works. Then if someone else thinks, oh, I have to do that, but I don't have enough money to do that, well, then there'll be a way to compromise on that, still do the same thing yeah. in your budget. So it's yeah. more about exactly maybe have less animals yeah. and yeah. use it's a bit more. It's an efficiency of a, thing, yeah. really. Yeah, and that, and that and that's why sometimes I'm not the best person to, to for everybody to formulate their model on because I have formulated my model to house quite a few animals so you know when I talk about that dried food and all that that suits my system you know but if you've only got two blue tongues go to town do whatever you like and you, you know? don't yeah you don't you're not going to be having to feed that many that you yeah, you don't need to buy 10 kilo bags of dried food you know like <laughs> yeah. that's you know you, you can shoveling it into you know, you know you can you can you can find a different method that works for you. Very cool.
Very cool. Yeah. All right, well, look, um, I guess once you got all the housing and uh, husbandry stuff, um, how much how much work do these guys need to get breeding? Um, I mean, we spoke about cooling a little bit before, but uh, is, is it hard to get blue tongues into the, the breeding mode? I, I, I don't think so. I, I personally think breeding any animal, it's all, it's all about the care and the husbandry side. If you get the basics right, they're programmed to breed. Right. You know, if you've got your animals at 110% capacity health-wise, or 100%, whatever you want to see. If, you, if you've got them looking good, you've got them in good nick, they're going to breed. Yeah, right. You know, you can't, but you know, God has already been played, if you like. It's already in there. It's already in there. Uh, makeup to breed. Yeah. If you've got if you've got those animals eating properly, thermoregulating properly, you've got all that set up. They'll breed when the season comes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Excellent. And uh, cooling wise, um, we spoke about that, which might be a bit harder, I, I guess, up here to ch achieve for uh, some of the southern blotchies, uh, or I guess southern yeah, species. It's a, it's, a, it's a good point, but. Uh, essentially, I haven't had too many dramas. I've had a few problems with Tasmanian animals. Right. But, um, cool, cooling, by the way, is providing an artificial winter to kind of stimulate spring to get everything reproductive, um, just for our uh, audience at home. Yeah, I found with 90% of the reptiles I've kept that if you let them, adults anyway, if you let them cop the natural nighttime heat, i.e. don't use any heat at night, then you will find that they cycle pretty well just let them use a natural season let them yeah and, th and that's another thing with keeping reptiles is yes we have all these thermostats lights and this and that and the other at the end of the day a reptile seeks a bit of heat in the morning he'll then go and find some shelter middle of the day and then he'll probably come out again for a little bit more heat late in the day yeah and then at night he'll cop the natural nighttime heat that natural nighttime temperatures so if you do that then they will breed. That natural cooling process will occur. When you start getting into May, the nighttime temperatures will drop. You will notice that your animals go off their food a little bit. So you, in essence, you're noticing them going into a natural cooling cycle. By the time June comes, they will stop feeding if you continue to let them have natural nighttime temperatures. Yeah. Then through July, the same. And then all of a sudden you'll start getting a little pickup in nighttime temperatures. A little bit more activity. A little bit more activity. And Ready your breeding triggers will, will happen naturally. Yeah. Yes, you can influence these, but you need to influence them within that pattern. Right. So what? if you if you've got them in a, in your shed or whatever, you know, start picking up your heat in the day in sort of August, yeah. you know, uh, July, August, you know, as the natural weather would go. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just match what's happening. Match what's happening. Yeah, don't try it. Yeah, don't try and check, don't try and recreate the wheel. Yeah, right. Yeah. So once you've got them breeding, obviously, um, for people such as yourself pr uh, producing morphs, it's time to start selecting for some things. Yeah. Um, is that how a lot of the uh, morphs come about? Like, or, or, or do you find a specific thing? Like, do you find a, a black hypermelanistic, pick that one, to start a line from, or are you getting a lot more of your morphs just popping up out of your breeding collection? Um, morphs, there's basically, if we if you rewind it, morphs come from two different places. You or, or make or, or comprised of two different things. You've got a a, genet, a true genetic morph like albinism, which is a a, a recessive, um, 
which follows Mendelian law. So that's a straight it's a recessive mutation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that, or you can get a, a specific trait that you pick, and it and it and it's a polygenic trait. So that poly means many. So there's many genes in play, and in those instances, you need to line breed it. Right. So after a bit of line breeding, you may actually find yeah, you, those you traits. Can, you can linked together. You can strengthen a trait that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got true genetic traits and you've got polygenic traits. Yeah. And over time, there is there is quite a few of both that have popped up. Yeah. Then from that, you then start to pair different traits together. So you pair different genetic traits together and you compare genetic traits to polygenic traits to improve the existing genetic trait. Right. So you're using one on the other to try to understand what effect that particular trait will have on the other when it interacts which, with, with the other yeah trait. which will then give you another morph mm. it's very interesting so you're basically crossing you know the specific lines once you've got them a little bit line bred and seeing what comes out of it yeah like for instance with an albino you might go right so you've got your your albino there so what would improve that what you know it doesn't necessarily need to be visual either it can be just for vigor's sake or that's a particularly strong line of animals there has plenty of babies never gets sick in the winter eats all its tucker yeah you know that um extra size etc so you can improve a mutation that way yeah you know and it like i say it doesn't necessarily have any huge visual improvement um, but on top of that, you can you can you can do it through visual means too. But at the same time, you're always trying to keep them as strong as possible. But you're always trying to change Maintain the appearance. Yeah, more, yeah, yeah. So mm. it's um, difficult little balance. It's a, it, that, that I would say that that's become more apparent over the years. It's a it's a balance. Yeah. It's easy to go. Oh, I'll put that with that to make that. When really it's no. Yeah. You, there's a few other considerations you need to put into play first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's um, it is interesting how many of the morphs end up being um, you know, pretty simple sort of uh, Mendelian recessive or you know, basic co-dominant traits. Yeah. Um, you know, does it take a lot of work to kind of line breed a lot of those traits, or do, do have a lot of them just by chance popped up? You get a nice recessive trait, and then yeah, usually you'll find it's it is very popular in the industry very quickly, and it spreads. Yeah, usually you'll find there's an instance of a founder animal that's found in the wild, yeah. or has popped up in in a um, collection. Yeah, rather than selectively progressively breeding for a darker or lighter individual. Uh, sort of you can get that too where you pick up a certain animal and you think oh that's got a specific trait yeah let's see if we can amplify that happened to me with some botch blue tongues where i I saw it in one particular animal and thought oh that's something that i could work with i'm sure it'll just be some kind of polygenic trait that i line bred yeah and what it actually proved out to be was a a co-dominant mutation but there was a further super form that that came out of that and you started pairing the related animals so you can actually find that there's genetic traits that sit there over and above what you what you find if you catch what I mean. You, yeah. you, basically, you can find a visual hat for something. Yeah, it looks a little bit different. You go, oh, I'll work with that, and suddenly that something else pops something out. Something entirely different comes yeah. from that. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, now yeah. we we were also talking about uh, the polygenic thing. So you know, if you've got multiple genes affecting one trait. You've mm. also got the uh, the opposite, which is pleiotropy. You've got yeah. one gene affecting multiple traits. So, yeah. and, and we did speak about health as well. Um, so, I guess a lot of the time when you're selecting for a specific thing, like the albinism or the melanism, um, 
how often are there, is there negative traits hitchhiking along with that? Do you I find that that's hard to deal with? Or? I think it, it can be, yeah. But that's, yeah, that that will always be apparent in any uh, genetic breeding because yeah. if, you, if you breed related animals, you're going to increase what they call homozygosity. Linkage to equilibrium. Yeah, that's right. And what I mean by homozygosity is that more often than not, any trait, whether it be a, a perceived positive trait or a negative trait, uh, comes about when two, two, two copies of a gene are, are put together. And you're going to get an increased incidence of that when you breed related animals. Yeah. So, Which is essentially what you're after for certain traits. But you're also <laughs> going to get a few mongrel traits in there that yeah. you're trying to kick out. So you have to understand what's going on. And you have to be able to select accordingly yeah. so that within a litter you need to be able to pick your strongest animals that are displaying the traits that you want and not be suckered in when you've got an animal that's displaying the traits that you want but it, it, it's a bit weak or it's this or that or right. other, you know some of those are okay for pets but they're not going to formulate what you're going to use and not going to be good for the downstream line you know, yes. to have those genes in the, yeah, in that's the breeding right. population. Yeah. A lot of the, if you do some background reading, a lot of it's been done, uh, especially with rats and things like that. Right. You, you can find some very simple um, reading online that, that covers a lot of that stuff, you know, with recessive and homozygous situations, which, you know, ultimately, just because you line breed, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have all unhealthy animals with the right breeding, you can form a, a homozygous trait that kicks out all the nasty yeah, traits. Right. And, and, and then further related breedings actually stop other nasties coming in because yeah. you've kicked them out. You know, so There's a lot of work going there's, on. There's a lot of thought processing it because a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking that related breedings causes problems. Yes, but also if it's done correctly, you can kick out. And you can eliminate them. You can eliminate problems yeah. too. Yeah, so, right. and once you've kicked them out, they're not going to come back in because you've got a closed gene pool. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, Scott, have you had a chance to see any of Joe's? Have you had a chance to go over there and see any of those crazy no, melanistic things? He's Jew, he's doing some work for me. I'm going to be coming over to do some stuff, stuff but yeah, um, yeah. it'll be later. So, you're being a bit more like me, just stalking reptile people online? Yeah. I don't necessarily stalk because one of my uh, ways that I've been able to uh, advertise my brand across the world is I am part of like 140 groups around the, around the world. And basically, I just use it as a platform to share my posts and stuff within the reasons of like the advertising rules and that kind of thing. Right. But essentially, my feed is now full just of reptiles. a giant list of reptiles. <laughs> I do turn, turn notifications off of ones that are particularly you know, over the top in a way, but in, in addition to that, I also have like two and a half thousand friends on Facebook that I use as a networking ability. Yeah, so right. I see reptiles come up from time to time. So I do get across things. Joe's on that list. So I see some of his posts from time to time. So it's obviously based on how Facebook does it, but yes, I do see reptiles from time to time, but I don't really search it out. Um, I only ever go searching for something if I'm trying to fix a problem, basically. Right. He's probably going to have to drag you over there to get you done. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, it's in the pipes. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, all right, I'll look, I suppose we should uh, talk a little bit about these uh, um, morphs and some of the coloration that um, you're trying to achieve. Uh, just before we get into, um, into it too much, a uh, little primer on reptile coloration. So, um, 
It's mostly uh, reptile coloration is actually produced by cells called chromatophores, which are mostly in the dermal layer, just underneath the epidermis. Um, so the, uh, for example, you have uh, melanophores, which produce melanin. You got xanthophores, uh, which are cells producing red or yellow pteridines, um, and uh, or, or uh, yellow carotenoids, uh, which are I think plant-based and uh, dietary, picked yes. up from food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on top of these, there's also iridophores, which produce structural colors, which are very fascinating cells. They're basically light reflecting, um, refracting off uh, these uh, crystalline reflecting platelets, strange little organelles. Um, uh, and their arrangement and orientation and the type of purine molecules that are on these little stacked ladders, uh, whether they're adenine, uh, adenine, hypoxanthine, and guanine, um, the way they reflect and re refract and reflect light interacts with the other chromatophores. Uh, to produce a variety of vibrant colors, including blues, greens, whites, and more. Um, so basically, when you're breeding for genes, you're looking, you're breeding for color, you're looking for genes that control variation in development and depositing of these chromatophores. T to me, I'm always looking for a contrast. Right. So, you know, if you put two phenotypes together, say you're picking two morphs that look pretty similar, and you're looking to create a new morph, you, you, you're probably looking down the wrong alleyway. You, you really need to be looking at two contrasts to, to ultimately figure out what the middle ground is gonna be between the two. So explain to us what you mean by contrast. You know, for instance, you've got, I'll use the, 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 the and I suppose this is the best example to use because the result itself has created a morph that everybody wants. The, pic the pictures of them just blow people away, yeah. um, and 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 it really is the best illustrator. You've got an albino which takes out melanin, right? So it right. takes out all your all your browns and your blacks. So you've got no melanophores, no browns and blacks, That's which makes a blue tongue lizard look yellow and orange. Fantastic. You've still got its erythrocytes yeah, and its xanthophores. Right. Yep, that's right. So, still still right. so you've got a yellowy orange animal. Yeah. Then you've got a hypermelanistic animal, which um, basically, well, it, it, by, by definition, it, it's an increase in black. But the hypermelanistic, hypermelanism in the blue tongue, it's not just that. There's also a further excitement in there of your um, oranges and yellows and so on and right. so, so forth. So it's just so an increase in expression of all uh, the chromatophores. Uh, pretty much the whole bucket. But the main one that's coming out is melanin is and, massively and, 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 over -expressed. And it's called hypermelanistic because the black masks everything else that's right. going on. So it looks black. So right, it's hypermelanistic. But the reality of that animal is there's a lot more going on in there. So it, it always, and it's not just me that found this interesting. You, you know, you looked at this animal, you could see it had a blaze orange belly. Yeah. Um, but the interest was always going to be, what's he going to look like if you take that black away? Yeah. And that's what the albino could do. And by contrast, that's what I'm talking about. You've got your albino here and your black here. They're both the opposite ends of the spectrum. Wow. So you're taking out the, um, you're basically using the albinism to take out. Take out the black. Take out the black, but leave it with massive overexpression of everything else. The iridophores, the xanthophores, and the that's right. erythrophores yeah. are yeah. all massively expressed in... That's these individuals and what what's that morph called? That's your it's, it's well, it was the it was the the I suppose it is the morph that really really turned people's heads in the reptile world to, to notice that blue the potential of blue tongues. I I was fortunate enough to be the first to produce it, and and I called it a larva. 
Right. So it, it basically was just as the name described. It was a just just molten orange. Yeah, beautiful hot orange. To the orange. point where people think you've doctored your photos, but it, it's not. You know, it's <laughs> turn it, the contrast way up. I it, mean. It's just yeah. out of control. Yeah. You know, you've literally got as much as that animal is black. The hypermelanistic, the orange matches that. It's literally just. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like basically take a, an albino blue tongue, which would be yellow and red, and then just really crank that yellow and red up. And, yeah, and it still has that creamy color as well in some parts of it as well. Yeah, right? that's right. But you, you've literally done that. You've just turned up the volume on all the color that's already there on an albino. That's very cool. Yeah. And 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 I suppose on t to to add further to that, the other classic that's been done quite across quite a few reptiles is what what will happen when you take the oranges and yellows out of the albino yeah, and that's right. done with an azampic animal or an anery it's the yeah. same thing essentially pulls out your yellows and your oranges too well azanthic uh, would be to you know no xanthophores um which uh our xanthophores are the yellow carotenoid containing uh xanthophores which are generally yellow or your uh, erythrophores are red so anerythric is and yeah, an erythrophore, non-erythrophore containing. That's right. In the reptile world, they both fall and almost fall into the same bucket. It's, yeah. It's um, it, it's okay to sit and talk about you know the differences between those two traits, but essentially the result is the same. Sure. And and through polygenics, it's actually very difficult to decide which is which. I've found, and and um, I've named one an anery. And then I found that it was actually something else that was putting the yellow in there. Right. And further down the track, figured out that it was probably exanthic. So, uh, yeah. The, <laughs> well, the, yeah, the terminology there's a little bit hard to be, uh, But yeah. essentially, to go back to what we're saying is, um, we've, we've just cranked the orange up on the albino. Now we can get the albino and we can put exanthic in there and we can turn the oranges down. Yeah, right. So we can now, now we've got an albino that's white and we've got an albino that's orange. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And um, and then it goes on from there as other traits are added. So, yeah. but that's the the crux of it, basically. Very cool. Now, look, there seems to be a lot of albino lines um, happening. Um, uh, like, I guess they must be um, pretty hard to find. Uh, like, when when you get one, I mean, I mean, in humans, it's about one in eighteen thousand um, rate of the, uh, I guess, tyrosine negative albinism. Um, now. We should probably speak about the different types of albinism here really quickly. Um, albinism being an error in melanosynthesis. Um, you have the uh, amino acid tyrosine converting, uh, being converted into melanin uh, through the process of melanosynthesis. Uh, it's two oxidation steps um, involving the catalytic enzyme tyrosine, uh, tyrosinase, um, which first turns tyrosine into, uh, let's get this right, dihydroxyphenylalanine dihydroxyphenylalanine or DOPA, um, which is then oxidized to dopaquinone. Um, dopaquinone itself is then turned into either theomelanin or eumelanin. Uh, so if you don't have that tyrosinase, there's no oxidation, oxidation reactions to produce DOPA or dopaquinone. No melanin synthesis at all, uh, happens at all. And this is the tyrosin, tyrosinase negative or T negative. T negative. T negative albinos. Um, Occurring in about one in twenty thousand people, um, even in humans, at the the uh, the gene TYR, the tyrosinase gene. Um, so uh, I guess that's what everybody's looking for with uh, uh, what most people are getting with most of their albinos. But yeah. 
we're kind of uh, starting to see a few tyrosinase positive. positive. Yeah, and mutations. that, and I suppose it's it's a good point to say uh, with blue tongues there are there are two forms of albino in the blue tongues. There's there is your T negative and there's your T positive. Okay. There is a lot of variation through the T negatives now, and a lot of people get confused and think that oh there's multiple different types, but essentially there is only one line of T negative albinism in blue tongues. It all comes from the original snake ranch line and um, and they're not producing melanin they're yeah and, and there's lots negative. of variation this is a bugbear of mine it's people's um, interpretation of the word line for me there's only one line of albinos the rest is either a combination or, or, or an outbreeding or a variation of that line okay um, and and to me what once you that that keeps it simple so people understand you know once you start getting too much of that talk in there, it, it, yeah. Right. People, and then you get people. Oh, this is my line. This is my line. There, and then it, be, the negativity of reptile. Yeah, then it, it pops yeah. its ugly head up once yeah, again. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Um, and the reason I like it like that is because then when another line does come along, it keeps it simple. So you've got, now got your T plus albinos, which is a northern blue tongue. Yeah, right. So you've got a T plus albino and a T negative albino, and it keeps it simple. That, yeah. That's all there is. Now the rest is just people's work on top of those um, with those traits. Right. Your T positive, you, you know, you described it in a, um, a scientific sense, is is slightly different to your T negative in the sense that what's the best way to describe it? I, I, this is the most simplistic way for me to describe it to uh, what I would call an intelligent ignoramus. By that I mean somebody who has no understanding of what you're talking about, but is intelligent enough to to take on board what you're saying. I'm right here, dude. Let's go. Let's go. So <laughs> your T negative takes out all your black, whereas your T positive just denatures the black and leaves you with a different color. Right. So it, it's still an albino in the sense that it's having an effect on melanin, but it leaves you with a different tone of color. And right. that's usually expressed in the early days of these animals, a, uh, a quite striking um, lavender coloration and then as they age it becomes sort of a caramel color lavender to caramel um, yeah. it's not what i would expect from um melanin but i guess in combination with all the other chromatophores that are in that's the, skin. the way you seem to express yeah. i'm probably not the best scientifically with a lot of this stuff but i i, I have seen a lot of these animals and for whatever reason that it, and it's the same in 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 the um one of the t plus um anteresias when they're born you've got sort of these vibrant colors and then as they age it seems to model out into either a silvery color or some kind of caramelly color lavender yeah. caramel blue tongues yeah very interesting um and uh are, are they common on the market at the moment well or? there is a small group that i'm working with at the moment they 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 will be common over the next four to five seasons yeah. and again they offer uh, more combination opportunities so What's a T plus albino going to look like when it's paired to a hypermelanistic albino? Bearing in mind that um, the T plus albino makes your melanin look purple, if you like. Well, wow. are we going to get a full purple blue tone? And that's what I mean about looking a at full, contrast. A full lavender. Yeah, that's right. That's what I mean about looking at contrast. You know, if you pair a T plus to a T negative albino, are you really going to get something striking? Yeah, you're going to get a bit of variation, but it's only probably going to be subtle because you've got two animals that are on that side of the spectrum already. Yeah. Whereas, you know, what's a, 
Now, what's a? I, I'd like to look at what a T plus does to an exanthic because that's just got black, black yeah, and right. white. So you're going to get your lavender and white, and what it's going to do to a hypermelanistic because you're going to get a solid. You know what I mean? It's a, to me, it's always it's, it's always about this side and that side, and let's get that middle animal. If you're going to change the game, yeah. You know, it's all it's good to and do if you all want these something combos. Unique. Yeah, if you it's great. All these combos probably will all get done, yeah. and it's great to see them all. But ultimately, now's the time to get into it. Hey? Well, all, it's all about the game changer, yeah. and that and that that for me is. Um, well, I look forward to seeing the lavender blue tongue whenever yeah, it comes out. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, if anybody else is interested uh, in seeing a lot of these stunning animals, such as the lavas, uh, the snows. Um, as we mentioned, uh, they're all going to be down. Uh, you're going to have the opportunity on March 25th at the Rep X Brisbane Reptile Expo, um, held at the International Convention Centre, uh, International Convention Centre Brisbane Showgrounds. Um, as an ambassador, Joe, I imagine you'll uh, be there with some of your lizards for everyone to come and check out. I certainly will. Yeah. And um, what, what else are you bringing for us? You bring lots of. Uh, you bringing the lava blue tongues. You bring. Yeah, the I'll, gi I'll give. A, I'll give a good spread of all those um, crazy color morphs. Hypermelanistics, of course. That's the, right. There'll be there'll be the one, jet blacks. Of, one of all those, but I'll also try. Uh, well, I will. I'll bring some of my monitors. I'm working on a method that I, I can get a couple of the bigger guys there too. Very I've cool. also got a few of the rarer morph carpet pythons um, so I'm going to try and put on a spread across three different species fantastic so, oh. three different genus if nice. you like so and, and the morphs that exist within those so right. um, I was given the role of being an ambassador so I'd better deliver <laughs> well, was I'd, sort of my approach to it I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure you will it sounds like you're going to have a pretty amazing display there so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it man yeah. it sounds sounds um Sounds awesome. Um, are you getting up to anything else on the day, or are you going to be uh, pretty busy there with those? Uh, I'll be those busy shows? with those, but I think um, John and Scott have got a couple of things that they want me to do on top of that. So yeah, right. I'll just tackle that one. Check out so, the displays. Yeah. See what everybody else is bringing yeah. to the game. Yeah. All right, and I understand at least you know, as we mentioned, you're not the only ambassador, so it's not all on your shoulders. There's going to be. Uh, no, there's a few of us there. So. Few of you guys. Yeah, a few of the people that I've always looked up to. So yeah, fantastic. a few people that I saw as ambassadors a few years ago. So. I suppose it represents a bit of a, a journey to me and a, a destination all in the same. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, you know, I really can't wait to see a lot of these uh, morphs in particular that you're going to be having there. But um, I guess, uh, Scott, uh, we should uh, find out. How's everything looking for the big day? Um, it's obviously a big organisational kind of nightmare in a way. <laughs> but... Um, it's all building up to getting there and that. Um, we've got some booths and tables that we need to fill up, but essentially the entire um, process is just going to it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> that. Um, the entire process, um, uh, it basically needs you to, um, what do you call it? Um, adapt to how things are at the time right so i have a plan and it doesn't necessarily go that way but that doesn't mean that i give up be on able it. to roll i just have to adapt to it yeah. so one of the issues we had is and it comes down to the legislation that is in queensland right and as everyone knows you can't sell can't sell reptiles and whatever in, in in shows and whatever yeah and so while that may be the case there they do have allocation that allow people to have their animals there but the stipulation is that they can't 
um, promote their animal. They can't promote um, their businesses by using their animals as tools for promotion. Right. Of so course. basically, it means no no signs, no shirts, no business cards, anything like that. But that's purely because these laws were made about thirty years ago. So there's an uh, they're essentially out of step with today. Right. So people may think that the DHP is all against them and everything, but that's not the case. They're really actually on your side. It's just they've got to follow laws that they have to by the way that they are. Yeah. The, they didn't make the rules. Yeah, they didn't make the rules. They were made by people 30 years ago who weren't as educated as people are today. No, they're just the, doing their job. They're just doing their job and the environment is different. Yeah. But nonetheless, these are restrictions that are on us as organisers to get people to have a show where there's animals to see. So... A way that we're getting around that is we thought, okay, let's make the... There's like an area that's for reptile recreational keepers. Yep. Uh, so typically that's um, places that you expect to be filled with uh, breeders, right? Yeah. Now breeders normally would want to come out and be able to sell on the day, but they can't. So we need to compromise on that. So we're saying that these tables are free for the recreational keepers on the proviso that they have animals to show and whatever. Yep. Um, there is these restrictions, but it's really about getting the show to have that impact we want. Yeah. And you can say that it's about us having a more successful show, but us to have a successful show is not just about financially whether it's successful. It has to be successful in the way that it delivers the right impact. And, and it, it does, promotes the community and, and promotes reptiles. And... Yeah, and if it keeps doing that, it can do the next year and so on. And this all ties into how we are engaging with government to get the legislation changed. Right. Because... If you go to them with essentially what is something out of the back shed, they're probably not going to engage with you. But you've got to be on their level. Yeah, right. They got to, they they need to see that they're doing something good for the community, and the best way to do that is show that you are on level with them, so that you're talking the same language in yeah, terms yeah. of presentation. So that's why the show has to be much more elevated than normally they are. Yeah. Um, and so that's another reason why we're taking it around Australia so that we can uh, introduce that whether the legislation component to other states or um, just as a whole bring a much um, essentially bring the um, show aspect of reptiles to another level yeah and bring it up to what people who aren't in reptiles have expected from other event spaces like food food and wine show and all that kind of thing right okay. otherwise you'll always be just reptile people doing a hobby thing. Yeah, you got to right. bring it up to that point where other people accept that it's better than it is. Yeah, right. It's all perceptions and um, impressions and that kind of thing. So yeah, crazy. My signage background and might as well do that. So yeah, massive undertaking. Like I was saying, is there is there any uh, the displays that you yourself are pretty uh, oh. excited about? Is there something that well, you're? Well, uh... I've never. I mean, I've seen eagles, but I've never seen an eagle. So <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really interested to go see the eagle. In there. Yeah. Um, Big, reptile. powerful bird, that big. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, um, reptile displays and that, um, not being someone who really knows uh, species and the differences in that, I'm just generally interested in seeing anything. Anything and everything, um, yeah. I have invertebrates coming in a way that I was planning on having, like, uh, uh, personal keepers of their invertebrates, but it didn't turn out that way. However, we're going to have demonstrator we've got another way that you can see some invertebrates so cool. there's that element there yeah the invertebrate thing but is really cool we're that's essentially fantastic. that 
that mixture of reptiles, birds of prey, and invertebrates is something we'll be taking to every show we do. So that's, that's very something cool. that always will occur in some degree. Sweet. So there's going to be more RepX shows in the future as well. Oh yeah, that's yeah. definitely planned. Like it's the first show, but the you got to start somewhere. The yeah, you got to start yeah. somewhere. And we, a lot of people say, why'd you start in Queensland? It's the hardest place in Australia. But if we can do it here, we can no, do it anywhere. Anyway. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And look, like I said, 1,700 me- uh, square meters um, of lizards snakes crocodiles birds of prey cool bugs um a lot to manage you guys must have a, a pretty amazing uh team of uh, production people behind uh, in the shadows making all of this uh this possible um, so i'm i'm sort of the lead of the production side and john is the um you know finance and the um key contact side but the other production members while they may not necessarily be directly related as team members in repex that is all comes down to our supporting partners, of which you guys are one of them, because we've talked to make a thing that every show we do, you could travel around with us. And basically, it's the show's podcast that exact exists on the day. And we right? would love to if yeah. we get the chance. But look, so, I mean, so many other fantastic sponsors like iHerb Magazine, who are well, iHerb, iHerb, and Rep, uh, Veritas Reptile and- are basically the people presenting it, but. We only uh, are basically showing that as a means for people to have something to relate to. Yeah, right. But we're not going out there to say that this show is a perfect space for me to showcase <laughs> my business. I really don't care that it's... Um, it could just be in the corner and it's just there. It's To me, it's just an element. Yeah. It's not the reason. Yeah. So, And that's the same thing with iHerb. So we, we show that it's there just to let people know that we're involved in some way, but not to make out that it's yeah. all about this well no i mean yeah of course not but i mean so many so many other cool partners getting involved uq herb society are going to yeah. be there reptile uh, rehab queensland reptile which we're rehab giving, queensland. i think we're giving uh two thousand dollars to Fantastic. and then every uh, i think we've made the agreement that every ten thousand dollars that we go above that uh five hundred dollars of that goes to them as well so it could be two thousand plus to like three thousand four thousand depends on how good the day goes yeah right um so and you know giving them the cash for that yeah, um, excellent. Helping helping that. local reptiles, helping local reptile rehabilitation. It's um, yeah. But like other key parts of the of the show is like signage is one big part. I want to make sure it's a visually a nice thing to look at. Yeah. Um. So I bought a car and I'm gonna get that wrapped. I'm gonna get a proper promo car. And just, uh, <laughs> all Rep-X the way up there, vi- very visual experience kind of thing. Um. And um. Uh. That's why we have a national signage supplier. So right. They've, and they're going to do a little signage all around Australia for us so yeah. wow. we need that kind of support that's why they're called supporting partners basically and taking it far and wide I love yeah. it alright guys we um we should uh, wrap up shortly let's get into our new research nice and quickly yep. here's a quick set of notes for you guys alright um, new research um, this one's not exactly as uh, new as we uh, normally do but um, we have to do it because it's so uh, appropriate. Green and Johnson from 2014 in the Journal of Thermal Biology. Coloration effects heating and cooling in three color morphs of the Australian blue tongue lizard. Ha! It's like the perfect paper, right? <laughs> Ideal. Uh, so look, background. Um, uh, let's talk uh, color-mediated thermoregulation as a hypothesis. Uh, the, color, uh, the color-mediated thermoregulation hypothesis is basically says uh, if you have a darker body color, you're going to have low reflectance and greater absorption. So you're more efficient at heat gain than pale colored animals, which are more reflective, and uh, you're also going to radiate that heat out a lot faster. Now this is uh, you know intuitive and pretty widely assumed to be true, but hasn't really been um, checked for empirical support too much. 
um, a lot of the measures of coloration are kind of qualitative and uh, uh, yeah, not um, very uh, statistically uh, large samples. Uh, some very cool, uh, uh, some very cool studies, um, and but few uh, cooling studies um, and inconsistent use of models versus painting of color morphs, uh, ver uh, colors on animals versus using actual color morphs. Um, various different ways to measure temperature mm. instead of keeping it all standard. Um, I guess blue tongues are a fairly ideal model with uh, you know, to measure reflectance on uh, heating and cooling because um, you've got one species with that sort of fairly extreme coloration now that you've got hypermelanistics, yeah. white skinks, and then your wild types um, without much physio other physiological change. Um, so pretty pretty interesting. They took eight albinos, ten wild types, eleven hypermelanistics. It'd be interesting to do some of these studies with the lavas. <laughs> um, from a size range of 28 to about 600 grams. Uh, the dorsal reflectance was measured um, uh, along uh, each color along five points. Um, so five, five color points uh, at each of these, uh, uh, three, sorry, all the colors at each of these five yep. locations, one on the head, three on the body, and one on the tail using an Ocean Optics USB 4000 photo spec um, and a uh, large uh, tungsten halogen for light. Uh, measuring uh, the wavelength uh, for greatest solar activity between 400 and 900 nanometers at one nanometer intervals with a black and white standard. So they calculated from there the percentage body cover by each coloration um, from dorsal photos uh, in uh, image J and the overall reflectance for each individual is characterized, you know, so you've got your reflectance per color and then that color per body coverage gives you reflectance. Um, and uh, they uh, also moved on to do the heating, uh, basically placing three 120 watt floodlights, 45 centimeters above them. And cooling was done in a sealed 15 liter polystyrene tub full of ice. Um, so basically they, they had a few thermocouples uh, attached um, about 15 to 30 millimeters into the cloaca and then uh, secured to the tail, lizard secured to a polystyrene board Ambient temperature taken with a thermocouple about three centimeters to the side on the board as well. Now they're uh, restrained to the board, I think, using a netting which was just pinned to them, so they're not like roped down or anything. Um, and uh, from there, uh, they were cooled first to about 17 degrees and then put underneath the uh, heat lamps. Uh, taking temperature recordings from 18 degrees C until they reached 33 and then put into cooling and uh, recording all the way until they reach 18 degrees C again. Uh, from this they calculated the thermal time constant value for heating and cooling, which is basically the heat transfer rate of an ambient uh, of a body to you know, its temperature to the ambient temperature. Uh, a high thermal uh, time constant value indicates a slow rate of temperature change, and a low, of course, indicates fast. Uh, variance in the reflectance was uh, tested by ANOVA, so uh, analysis of variance. Tests for color va uh, variation and body mass covariance were tested by Ann Kogler, analysis of covariance. Um, pretty cool, they found some significant differences in reflectance between all morphs. Um, well, particularly between uh, the uh, wild types and, uh, so hang on, what do we got here? Uh, reflectance for albinos was 56% uh, 99.3% for wild types and 1.6% for melanistic. So, you know, your wild, wild uh, lizards are, you know, much, much less absorptive than those melanistics. 1.6% reflection. Yeah. That's nothing. They're just sucking up the heat. Yeah. 
Whereas your albinos are, ref are reflecting about 56% of, yeah. of the light that's in it, about I, half. I suppose to put a, 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 a practical edge on that, and I can do it in, in, in a single line, is um, a black blue tongue will bask for a shorter period of time than an albino. Yeah, absolutely. So you've yeah. observed this as well? You can see it. If you yeah, line right. up all my outdoor cages outside, um, you, you can see that basically on a daily, yeah, daily yeah. basis. Yeah, okay. You know? And um, furthermore to that, to add some, I suppose, some um, natural ecology into it, I don't know whether it's quite a te technical really, um, you find darker animals in the south of Australia, and Absolutely. you find lighter yeah. animals in the north of Australia, you know, and that, and that, yeah, those two things. And not, not just species variation, but you've got a darker species down south as well yeah, that is restricted right. to those cooler climates. That's right, yeah, so... Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, now, as far as covariance as well, uh, color morph and body mass both significantly influence on heating and cooling rates independently, um, with the albinos gaining uh, heat slower than the wild types and melanistics, while melanistics lose heat faster than wild types and albinos. Um, these were all significant with p-values below 0.005, despite the large effect on body mass. So, of course, this supports the predictions that, um, as you would have had, you know, color-mediated yeah. thermoregulation hypothesis. But this is the first evidence unconfounded by mass effects or variable use of paint between studies or qualitative uh, color or reflectance yeah. measures. So, you know, it's it's you know pretty expected, but they've just kind of nailed that one right nailed on the head. Nailed it and done it. Yeah. Like a true scientific edge. And, exactly. And, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Run just... the intellectual rule over it, if you like. Yeah, yeah exactly, done, yeah. Done it with all the... Yeah. made sure that they were right. Yeah. Um, straight from the paper, just quoting here, heating occurred two, point, uh, two to three times faster than cooling for all morphs, uh, probably due to temperature-dependent changes in peripheral blood flow influencing conductance. Now, um, this is for the um, hypomelanistics, I believe. Heating occurred two to three times faster than cooling for all morphs. Um, uh, oh, heating occurred faster than cooling, of course. Um, that's right, because of uh, uh, temperature-dependent changes in peripheral blood flow. So um, they're going to heat up really, really quickly and then cool down because they're going to trap all that temperature you know, inside their body by changing the amount of blood going to the surface and allows them to trap that heat in their body for a bit longer rather than having to heat up again. Yeah, that's right. It's so heat got to the core. In, in certain cases, you'd say. Right, yeah. so heat gain in melanistic ectotherms uh, may outweigh any disadvantage of increased heat loss. So despite the melanistics, you know, um, you know there may, may be some potential negative effects, you know, uh, such as radiating the heat out faster, they kind of negate that with some of the changes in peripheral blood flow. Um, yeah, pretty interesting. Um, and obviously, uh, Something for people to think about if they're buying melanistics. You know? Yeah, so it's certainly something that ultimately, at the end of the day, a reptile will thermoregulate. And, if you uh, give it a good grade, yeah, and to put a practical edge on that, it, it just shows the importance of giving that gradient within a given yeah. given environment and and take into account due consideration whether it's morphs that you're playing with or whether it's different species whether you if you're trying to look after southern species in a northern environment or exactly northern when species in a southern environment yeah. you know this is where this 
uh, you've got to take the practical. Well, exactly, yeah. Well, well when, when we moved up with my southern blotch blue tongues, which are you know, quite dark, they've got a little bit of kind of mm. pale brown speckling. But other than that, they're almost jet black. That's right. Yeah. The ones that we had anyway, yeah. and um, you know, bring them up here they're to They're basically melanistic for, yeah. for, the, for, the, for, the, Compared. for the point of what we're discussing. Yeah. Know? So, yeah, yeah. We, we basically had to completely um, change our, um, our heating and lighting, particularly in yeah. summer. Mm. Mm. All right, on to the next one. Um, we'll uh, just uh, smash through this one as quickly as possible. Uh, this is Ewers et al., an actual new paper from 2017 last year. Endocrine differences among color morphs in a lizard with alternative behavioral strategies. This is from uh, the Journal of Hormones and Behavior, uh, issue 93. Uh, the tawny dragon, Tenophorus decrezii, a small sexually dimorphic agamid lizard which lives on the rocky outcrops of Kangaroo Island, Mount Lofty, and Southern <coughs> Flinders Ranges in South Australia. The females are uniform, have a uniform cream throat with variable yellow striking and throat coloration in males. Um, now there's variation uh, within and between populations of this coloration. For example, Flinders males have four distinct color morphs. Orange, yellow, gray, and orange yellow. Now in many color morphic species, steroid hormone actions, uh, the actions of androgens and glucocortico glucocorticoids, mediate behavioral changes. Uh, and further, um, activational roles of androgen uh, happen during reproduction. So, for example, you've got your dominant morph um, males um, with higher testosterone than the less dominant morphs, and also higher aggression. Um, for example, this was uh, you know, seen in the uh, Dalmatian wall lizards where they were using bite force as a, as a um, test of, uh, I guess, aggression. Now, um, also, you, we might expect the initial versus stress-induced corticosteroid and androgen responses um, that that <coughs> might reveal some differences uh, between life history trade-offs for the different morphs between you know survival and reproductive output. For example, uh, now uh, in the paper here, the uh, authors were testing whether previously established, uh, established behavioral differences in C. decrezii uh, match predicted differences in initial and stress-induced levels of androgen and corticosterone concentrations and aggressive performance, which again they did with bite force. Uh, pretty cool little paper. You know, they've gone down to uh, Ulumbia Yorambula Caves Historic Reserve in South Australia, where the uh, population of uh, C. decrezii has those four morphs of uh, the, uh, the males anyway. The orange high aggression, the grey low aggression, and the yellow and orange yellow moderate aggression morphs. Uh, they took blood samples from 25 lizards in 2011, 42, and 2012 and these were uh, spun, and the plasma, you know, centrifuged of course, uh, the, and the plasma taken off and stored at negative 20. They used uh, ELISA immunoassays to measure plasma corticosterone and testosterone concentrations absorbed in red on the plate at 415 nanometer on a fluorostar optima plate reader. Uh, so it's basically uh, laser fluorescence of the little sample there. Uh, calculated corticosterone stress magnitude uh, was uh, done uh, 30 minutes after capture uh, and compared to initial cortico concentrations uh, immediately on capture. They uh, had 142 caught over three years uh, and data on 70 corticosterone and 56 androgen concentrations, 51 bite force tests and also additional factors such as time of day, snout bet length, um, time and body temperature at capture and they used general uh, mixed linear model uh, general linear mixed models to test for the differences between color morphs in androgen corticosterone concentration and uh, cort uh, corticosterone stress magnitude we're going to call that CSM uh, and used a general linear model 
to test for uh, uh, correlations in uh, uh, bite morph, uh, uh, morph bite force tests. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, the morphs do appear to differ in their not only their baseline but also their post-capture stress androgen, particularly the orange morph, which is more aggressive and has more androgen than the grey or yellow morphs or the uh, well, any of the other morphs really. Post-capture, the grey and yellow uh, morphs increase their androgen, whereas there's no increase in the orange or orange-yellow morphs. They're, they're just high, high, super androgen, angry all the time, particularly during the breeding season. Mm. No difference in corticosterone level or CSM. No, uh, and this is, you know, um, after, you know, corrected for uh, temperature and size. Uh, no difference uh, in size and temperature corrected bite force between morphs. However, the orange-yellow uh, morph did tend to have a higher body temperature at capture um, and therefore perhaps that's where it's uh, increased bite force comes from which might reflect some anti-predatory behavior uh, differences for example uh, the uh, orange had the smallest flight distance it was less scared as well spending more time exposed uh, might lead to that higher body temperature at capture which might itself lead to that greater yeah. bite force um, or temperatures affect both bite force and flight distance could go the other way around um, it might just be that those morphs pick up temperature better and uh, end up uh, having a lower flight distance and uh, a greater bite force. Um, just reading uh, straight from the paper here, despite differences in endocrinology between morphs and Cetacresi, the extent to which orange-yellow individuals employ a distinct strategy remains unclear. Furthermore, the role of other neuroendocrine and endocrine mechanisms such as receptor abundance, binding globulin capacity, and steroidogenic enzymes and peptide hormones can also account for differences in behavior and morphology between morphs, should be considered. So, pretty interesting how much, um, I guess, behavioral difference there is in... in, uh, in, in yeah, yeah, straight yeah. up just morph, morph coloration leading to, I guess, yeah. you know, I, I, this is kind of what we're talking about with polygenic and uh, pleiotropy. Yeah, you know, It's right. not just color that's being affected with some of these traits, it's the color might be linked to hormone concentrations, androgen concentrations and things like that. Yeah. Have you seen much behavioral differences oh, between the morphs, other than, I guess, thermoregulatory stuff like we talked about in the last paper there? There is behavioral differences between morphs, for sure. Yeah. Um, I've never really looked at it like, like, like you've just described. Is, there a, is there a more aggressive one? Uh, absolutely. You know, and, and us, you know, albinos defend themselves in a different way. They lack, they lack vision. I mean, that's that's obviously a, a reason, but that's it's still down to colour. Right, yeah, yeah. Because that colour has affected the vision. Yeah, which affects the behaviour. Which affects the behaviour. Yeah. So that's the one that jumps out at you straight off the bat. Right. You know, it's using different senses to go about its daily business. But um, I also find that the pure white northerns can be quite aggressive too. And they're, they're much more aggressive than their heterozygous siblings right so you'll get different behavioral patterns within the litters you know and uh, so you expect your wild type to be somewhere there in the middle and some of the other morphs might be more aggressive or less aggressive depending on what is hitchhiking along yeah that's right yeah fascinating um, to say that i totally understand that i'd be, <laughs> I'd be going for further than i could take it but I, I certainly do notice differences in in different color morphs that's fantastic in, in regard to, to to sort of back some of that up if you like yeah yeah that's very yeah. interesting yeah cool well look i think we're gonna have to wrap it up there i wish we could um sit here and talk more about these uh spend a bit more time on these new research topics but we've already been chatting here for ages we're running out of time um so guys uh just before we head off um big thanks of course to uh rep x and uh uh guys go check them out at rep x 
www.ghostbusinessbrand.com.au. That's uh, 1,700 square meters of uh, you know amazing reptiles, invertebrates, birds of prey, so much more. Uh, Repex.com.au. Um, guys, thanks so much for coming along and, uh, and joining That's us. Right. And um, Blue Tongue Wizards on Facebook, bluetonguewizard.com.au. Yeah, the, the, the name I use is, is consistent across a lot. It's bluetonguewizard.com.au, so that even the Facebook page is called that. Yes, if you punch that into the internet, you're going to find the web page, but it is called .com.au on both Facebook and Instagram too, which is, I suppose, my preferred destination now yeah. with um, the way social media uh, has gone. Yeah. You know, we're all looking for the... Um, easily consumable make it a little bit faster mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah. right that's where everybody sits a bit right less painful, everybody's yeah. already there yeah exactly so let's use it yeah. you know and that and that's where i've if you like deferred all my well look i mean instagram, updated info too you know instagram's yeah. a great place to you know see some of these beautiful morphs i mean you've got all your amazing pictures of you know your lavas and your snows and your albinos and your hypomelanistics mm. and fantastic stuff really um so that's bluetonguelizard.com.au on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Excellent. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for coming, guys. Um, and I think that's about it. Guys, plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails coming up in the future. And, uh, yeah, don't forget, Brisbane Reptile Expo. That's the RepEx Brisbane Reptile Expo on the 25th of March at the Royal International Convention Centre Brisbane Showground. Come and check us out. We'll all be there. And, uh, yeah, plenty more uh, wildlife cake and cocktails uh, coming up in the future. Cheers, guys. Talk soon. Bye.